Hi, everybody. This is John Montoya. And this is John Parings. We're authorized infinite banking practitioners and hosts of the fifth edition. Today's episode, episode 18, the ideal characteristics of the perfect investment. So John, I know you wanted to start off our podcast today with talking about the four places wealth can reside. Let's dig into it. Yeah, and this um, this was a great talk given by uh, James Nethery at the IBC Think Tank. And there are really kind of four macro places you can keep money. You know, the first one is income and estate taxable accounts like checking, savings, savings accounts, CDs. Second place is income tax deferred and estate taxable accounts. So those are the the ones we're familiar with, like qualified retirement plans, like 401ks, IRAs, annuities, and real estate. And then you have the income tax-free and estate taxable, like life insurance and Roth accounts. And then you've got income and estate tax-free. So both of them are tax-free. And those are things like combining life insurance and trusts. And if you look at what most people, where most people keep their wealth, by far, most people keep their wealth in the, the second, which is income tax deferred and estate taxable. So tax deferred qualified plans and real estate, mostly in the form of their primary residence. It's an interesting thing to talk about in terms of why people keep most of their wealth in this particular category. So the question is, Again, why? Why do people, what do people like about these types of uh, assets so much that most of their wealth resides there? Yeah, and I don't know if it's so much as what do they like about it. I think in most cases, it's really all they know and all that they've been inundated with as far as what they should be doing is to put money into these type of tax deferred plans and to prepay their mortgage. There, there's a part of me that thinks that it's really just a lack of knowing better options. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, I think the lack of knowing better options causes people to sort of parrot the uh, benefits that the, you know, the banks and the financial institutions and the HR departments and the, and the qualified plan managers, you know, we kind of hear the responses that we're taught, but maybe not totally correct. And I mean, I think if we, if we look at qualified plans, especially, I think the number one thing I hear um, in terms of benefits of having that is that you get a tax deduction when you contribute to a tax deferred qualified plan. And um, I, I don't know if you hear that same kind of language, but there is no tax deduction when you make a payment into a qualified plan, there is a tax deferral. And I think what a lot, a lot of times what people think uh, when they say a tax deduction is they think that by lowering their you know, take-home income that they put themselves in a lower tax bracket. And, and that can be true, but what a lot of people don't realize is that tax brackets are last dollar, right? So if you're in a, let's just say $100,000 a year, if you go over $100,000 a year, it puts you in a, say, 30% tax bracket instead of a 24% tax bracket. I know I'm making these up right now off, off the cuff, but, and, and let's say you make $101,000. Well, a lot of people think that if you reduce your take-home income into the lower tax bracket, that, that you'll actually save the difference between 30 and 24% on all of your income. But that's not true. You pay the tax as you graduate into the different into the different tax brackets. And so really all you'd be saving was that 6% on the $1,000 that you went over on the tax bracket. And so that's like a 
a big thing that I see out there that people really don't understand how the tax deduction or tax savings works. And it's so it really ends up not being a huge deal unless you can really jump an entire tax bracket that might start to make sense. Yeah. And I, I know we've talked about the trade-offs too, with putting the money into a tax deferred plan, because it's not just about the immediate gratification of maybe having a lower tax bill, but there's a lot of trade-offs like lack of liquidity. You know, you lock up that money for decades. And of course we have no blueprint on, you know, what that money is going to turn into uh, ultimately when you need it. So th there are the trade-offs there, but one thing I like to always say about 401ks, not a tax deferral. I, I don't call it a tax deferral. I call it a tax postponement because mm -hmm. in reality, that's what you're doing. You're, you're agreeing to postpone those tax dollars to a future date that, well, no one has a crystal ball, so we don't know where taxes are going to be. But if you were to ask yourself, do you feel taxes are going to be the same, lower or higher in the future? What would your answer be? And for most everybody that I talk to, and I'm sure all the people you talk to as well, they all say, well, taxes are probably going to be higher in the future. If all things being equal, if, if you feel taxes are going to be higher in the future, why would you postpone paying taxes at a later date at a higher tax bracket? Exactly. And then, you know, the, the counter to that is people will say, well, I'll be in a lower tax bracket. And it's like, well, what, what will that be? And, and no, one can, no one can ever answer that question either because we just don't know. And the other side of it is these tax deferred plans are really like threading a financial needle. If, if everything goes the way you want and you create a huge retirement account, well, guess what? Now required minimum distributions kick in and you can no longer take advantage of that lower tax bracket because you're going to be required to pull out the amount that the government tells you you need to pull out and then you're going to pay tax on that. It's really a, a quite a bit of lack of control where I'd say the majority of the time <laughs> that that you're funding and using qualified tax for qualified plans, you're, you're really not in control of, of anything that's happening. Let's segue into the third place that money can reside that you spoke a little bit about. And I think you mentioned it was life insurance and Roth accounts. Right. When we talk about life insurance, I mean, life insurance is an income tax-free asset, just like Roth accounts are. So if you take money from a life insurance policy or you borrow against a life insurance policy, which is the usually the preferred strategy, just like a Roth account, it's income tax-free because it's a loan or the Roth has already paid taxes on it. So you can get that money tax-free, but it is estate taxable. So if you, if you have a life insurance death benefit or you die and you have a Roth account that can count towards your estate tax. But they would be income tax free. That's right. And then life insurance and trusts. So that's a, that's a combination where you can use life insurance in conjunction with an irrevocable trust. And that allows you to have an income tax free cash asset and an estate tax-free asset. But in this case, you do lose a little bit of control over the cash value of the life insurance policy while it remains in the irrevocable trust. So just like when we talk about designing a life insurance policy, everything's about trade-offs. Same thing goes with uh, some of these macro places where wealth can reside. And so just a quick recap, those four categories, we have checking and savings, CDs, so basically bank account, and those are all estate taxable. The second place, we have qualified retirement plans, annuities, real estate. These are tax deferred and also estate taxable. We have the third category, life insurance and Roth accounts. These would be income tax free 
but they are estate taxable. And then in the last category, we have life insurance again and trust, and those would be income and estate tax-free. Yes. And so when we have all these things and then, and then we discuss the idea of how most people do keep their wealth in these tax-deferred qualified plans and or their home, those are the two biggest places where most people store their wealth. You know, we're talking about these four macro categories. It kind of brings up the question, where is the best place to store your money? Now might be a good time to kind of address the title of this podcast where it's, you know, we titled it the ideal characteristics of a perfect investment. And the reason we chose those words is because investing isn't necessarily always just putting your money in the stock market or real estate investing. What we're really talking about is the perfect place to store your wealth. In order to do that, we need more than just a rate of return. We need that money to move. We need, you know, we need it to address taxes. We need it to address loss opportunity costs. We need it to address the direction and flow of the money. And so where is the best place to store money? Yeah, and one more thing I want to add about the title of the show, um, the ideal characteristics of the perfect investment. That word investment, psychologically, people are very, for lack of a better word, invested in that word. Because this is the mindset that everybody is indoctrinated with. Put your money to work, chase that rate of return. And we forget that there's more to building wealth than just investing and earning a rate of return. Part of any financial plan is a cash asset or a cushion or a cash reserve that is needed. Really what we're trying to get at is the best place for money overall. And we want to compare the different places where you can park money and get out of that mindset that everything is all about investments and chasing rate of return. If you follow that path, what's going to end up happening is what we see so often, which is a household very much cash poor. Something that we've reiterated quite a bit is that you'll never be in a worse position by having access to cash. So ultimately at the end of the day, like Nelson Nash used to say, money has to reside someplace. And I love how you said that about, you know, people are invested in the idea of investment. That's pretty good. And, you know, I don't, I don't think either of us are saying that you shouldn't have a 401k or you shouldn't have a house. You shouldn't, you know, buy real estate. You shouldn't use, you know, a stock market investments, anything like that. But I think most people are only doing that. And I think that's a problem. You know, if you look at where most people's money is going, if you really add it up, probably 50 or 60% of everyone's money is going towards paying tax and, and interest debt service. Meanwhile, they're all like, you know, at the party talking about the 10, maybe 20% that they're actually investing in the stock market with, you know, no control, no collateral. It's like, what, what about the other 80% of your money? And so I think that's what we're getting at is, you know, where's the best place to, to store your money? Absolutely. So let, let's talk about the key criteria that we should be looking for when we're looking for the best place to park money. Guarantees, no penalties, liquidity use and control, protection from creditors, leverage, tax deferred growth, tax-free distribution, collateral, guaranteed loan values, right? Guaranteed loans, um, unstructured loan repayment options, and additional benefits such as disability waiver of premium, chronic illness riders, terminal illness riders, there's a lot of benefit that you could be receiving, or at least you could be looking for, but most people, again, they're simply looking for, what is it? One thing, rate, rate of return. return. <laughs> exactly. And, and they're missing this entirely 
bigger picture on what they could be doing to create a, a safe and liquid foundation for their money. As we look through all these key criteria, let's look at the big bucket that most people keep their money, the 401k and their home. And if you, if you look at all these criteria, the 401k really only can answer yes to one thing, and that's tax deferred growth. It has some liquidity and control, but very little. It's possible, you know, up to with a loan or the surrender with penalties, but even the loans have, you know, pretty strict criteria um, of how much you can get. And then the payback terms, you know, if you have a loan outstanding on a 401k and you lose your job or leave your job for whatever reason, that automatically becomes a distribution that you owe taxes and a penalty on. The max loan on a 401k is 50,000 and you have to repay it within five years. Yep. So even if you keep your job, you know, you, you have to repay that loan in full in five years. And then you're also repaying it with after-tax dollars, meaning you're essentially being taxed twice on that money. Right. Most people are against paying more than they have to when it comes to taxes. Now you have to live with these rules and restrictions that come along with it. Uh, when it comes to leveraging a house, you can only qualify for however much the bank is willing to lend you. And right. they determine the rules, the all the rules and restrictions uh, that, you know, based on your situation will either allow you to take 60, 70, 80, you know, maybe a little bit more available equity in your house. And then you agree to those loan terms with the bank. It's nothing that's completely under your control. Let's not forget that right now, home equity lines of credit have been postponed entirely in the state of California. Right now we're in this, in this period where the equity that we've built up in our house is less and less in our control right now. You know, by prioritizing payments into the equity of your home, how much of that do you actually have in your control and how much of that can you use without just completely selling the property? Yeah, it, it's great to own a lot of real estate, but if you're cash poor, you know, you're, you're really stuck in a predicament of having to sell assets when sometimes maybe you don't want to. Uh, let's talk about where we feel the best place for money is. If you're listening to our show, you probably have a pretty good idea. And that's an IBC designed whole life policy. And the reason why, or I should say the reasons why are pretty simple. All the criteria mentioned, we get with an IBC-designed whole life policy. And just to reiterate, that's risk, guarantees, no penalties, liquidity, use, and control, protection from creditors, leverage, tax-deferred growth, tax-free distribution, collateral, guaranteed loan values, right? Guaranteed loans, um, unstructured loan repayment options, and additional benefits such as disability waiver of premium, chronic illness riders, terminal illness riders. And so the list can almost go on. And, you know, the only thing it doesn't have, according to, mo you know, according to the financial pundits is a high rate of return. We have to ask compared to what? When you look at a tax-free return compared to all the other types of returns, it starts to look pretty good. Yeah, just comparing numbers. I mean, especially here in the state of California, and I realize not everybody lives in California. If you're in the top tax brackets here, you're being taxed on over 50% of your income at the highest levels. And so you'd have to earn somewhere in the neighborhood of about eight and a half to 9% in a 401k type plan just to equate out to what you'd get into an IBC designed whole life policy. And that's every single year. Exactly. And that's 
taking all the risk to do that. I mean, really the only other types of accounts that have no risk and guarantees are things like CDs and bank accounts. Same thing with the with liquidity. You know, mutual funds have some liquidity, but there again, there's no leverage. So it's like if you if you use that money, the opportunity you lose the opportunity cost on the growth of those accounts over a period of time. Yeah, we talk about trade-offs, especially I think in the the last couple episodes. Well, there's always trade-offs for putting money in other places. I always like to think of these policies as the foundation for everything that I do. That that's my mindset. Mm-hmm. Get the money into these policies because I know that it'll always be working for me on a tax-free basis and then I can do whatever I want with those cash values, whether it's to invest in other places or simply use it to finance my lifestyle, which includes paying taxes. Mm-hmm. And you know, just one last word on rate of return. I mean, you know, a lot of people only look at rates of return based on the the two dimensions that you can use money in in normal in the normal sense. Like money can either you put your money in a regular investment, it can either go up or it can go down in two dimensions. Well, if we look at the total return over your whole life, if you have cash value that can be leveraged, which acts as collateral to buy other investments. So instead of putting your money in in a 401k, a mutual fund, or, or a piece of real estate, what if you could earn a rate of return in the whole life insurance policy while buying with the same money, essentially, buying other, you know, multiple other income generating investments. And so if we if we start to look at things in that respect, your money starts to look more like three dimensions rather than two. And the total return would really just eclipse anything that you could see by doing something just once with your money, getting to that thing that, you know, the, what you mentioned before, it's a, you know, when people put money directly into an investment, it's a one-time use. Whereas if you add this layer of capital using whole life insurance, it's a, well, infinite use, infinite banking. (laughs) Right. And that's why we call it an and asset versus an either or type of asset, which is essentially any other place that you can park money because it ties it up and it's that zero sum game. Your money is either in one place or the other. With a IBC whole life policy, it's an and proposition. You can do this and you can do that. One last thing I would want to share is the asset diversification mindset that people have, especially when it comes to their investments. People are instructed wisely to think about mixing up their portfolio. Most commonly and generically, it might be 60% stocks, 40% bonds. That's always Mm -hmm. kind of been the tried and true. But for me, that's only one level or one dimension. There's also tax diversification. And this comes back to one of the major problems that just about every household has. It's not only where they're parking wealth in terms of asset diversification, I mean, most people are, again, putting the majority of their money into qualified plans, 401ks and IRAs, and paying off their home as quickly as possible. But they have very little in the way of tax-free funds. They don't diversify across different taxable buckets. And when I say taxable buckets, I'm talking about taxable accounts, tax-postponed accounts, not Mm tax-deferred, and, of course, tax-free. And most people don't realize this but there's very few places where you can direct money and have access to it tax-free. And very few places where you can put money and you can put a dollar somewhere and have more than $1 of liquid cash 
available for you to use and invest at the end of the year. It sounds pretty, pretty idealistic if you ask me, but it's real. It exists. It's out there. <laughs> you know, you just have to talk to an authorized practitioner to make sure it's set up right and build that foundation. Well, you know, I agree. So I think if anyone has any questions on this, you can always go to the fifth edition.com and you can find our contact information and get a hold of us. And you can also, by the way, just so you know, you can schedule an appointment directly with us using our online calendar system. If you ever have any questions and, or just want a consultation on the infinite banking concept. All right. Well, I think that's it. Thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care, everyone.